Thank you, Lord. We bless you this day. Lord, we are excited to come into your presence. We're excited to gather together. Lord, you speak of an anointing, just us getting together for virtually any purpose, but how much more for spiritual purpose. So we thank you for this time, God, and we come before you. We ask you to pour your spirit out upon us. Give us wisdom, clarity, understanding, God, all all that we need, God, going forward, that you might be glorified in our lives, Jesus. Open your word to us, God. We want to be equipped to glorify you in all things, Jesus. Amen. All right, here we are. We are starting from where we left off last week. I was saying to the group that's in the house right now that my notes keep getting longer. I don't even mean what I'm sending out. The things that I send out, please don't ever feel like it's homework. I, I hated homework going to school, and I, so I don't like giving homework, but I'm sending you things because we can't, it's literally impossible to cover or give you examples of all the different variations and um, people's understandings over the history of since Daniel was given this revelation. Something I sent you yesterday was from written in the 400s. It was, it was translated in the 1950s, but it was written in the 400s. It was St. Jerome. They were already pressing in to wondering about some of the, the prophetic ambiguities that are, are purposely addressed in these scriptures. And I am more convinced than ever that our purpose as saints is not information, it's transformation. So we want to know these things as much as we can, but we don't want to get stuck there. And that, quite frankly, is why it becomes a swamp. Because people, like, even, I mean, I get sucked into it, and I, I am so not a researcher in this stuff, and I get, because I'm, first of all, there's an accountability when you teach. The scriptures, James said it. It says, mm -hmm. it basically is saying, don't be a teacher. Avoid it if you can. But then he's saying, because there's a double accountability. So I tremble at that, thinking, I'm okay not knowing, but I don't want to go spouting something out as gospel when it is not. And there have been things, there are people who have literally fallen on the sword of a particular doctrine because it's what they were well taught, but it was the only thing they were taught. And as a result of it they, it, they were a blank sheet of paper, now they weren't, and it made sense, so they're running with it, and we do not want to do that. So we are going to, we're getting into the whole spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-infused story again, because that's what God is doing on earth in these days. He's, he's drawing and driving people to a place of spirit infusion where we just say, God, I am so desperate for you. I am so desperate. I need to know you, hear you, understand you as best as I can. I want the context of who you are and how you work. So if there's something happening that's not in scripture, I know how to respond in a godly way. I believe as things accelerate and get crazier on earth and more demonic and dark on earth, we're going to be more challenged to not simply have a, again, a spreadsheet. We're going to be more challenged by that. Every single circumstance on earth is not addressed in scripture. The scriptures can make you complete, but the completion of you is Christ in you. It's not a completion of now I finally got the whole story. It's actually a great relief for us because you sit there and depending upon how you are intellectually or, or reading comprehension, you can sit there thinking, I'm handicapped, I'm overqualified, I, I know all this, who's going to teach me more? All those things are all bad. They're all bad directions. 
to directions just facing Jesus every single day. My pressing into the big topic of spirit-led, spirit-infused, spirit-responsive is more than a bunny trail. It's the whole thing in 1 Corinthians. It comes down to God is trying to draw us into this place of intimacy with him, and it comes through a spirit-led life. God is calling us into this place of intimacy and into a place of understanding. It's interesting because some of the notes, there's like parts and pieces of these notes were, were taught in 2021, and I actually was teaching them 9-11, 2021, which was 20 years, it's a 20-year anniversary of the towers coming down. And, I, you know, and I was even saying then that there's, there's a lot happening on earth in our lives during the course of our lives over the last 10, 20 years. There's been a ton of things. Things are absolutely accelerating. A lot of them is God doing things. We saw that when we got into Daniel 7 and 8. The angels of God were stirring the waters and beasts showed up. So sometimes we have a tendency, Satan really wants to present himself as being in charge. He's not in charge. And we have to remember that, which is why when people don't understand that, or if you're taught a doctrine of God's only doing all these like lovely, happy, wonderful, you know, angelic music things on earth, men's hearts will fail for fear because it looks like, oh no, the place is out of control. It's not out of control. God is doing a work. Part of that work is awakening a covenant-breaking nation, especially Israel, particularly in these days, because ground zero for the conclusion of the age is Israel. It's Jerusalem. It's not New York. It's not Paris. It's not Moscow. All these are, in many ways, bit players in a drama that centers right around Jerusalem. But it also has to do with America. It has a very special place, and people doesn't they don't see our name in the, in the, in the scriptures, although, quite frankly, I've done some online research because... I, we're named after Americo Vespucci, who was an explorer, but I don't know where he got his name because A.M. in Hebrew means people. And you just, I mean, it's a, it, it, there's something interesting about America as a coat of many colors, as a covenant nation, as a world power during these critical days and times the last 400 years. And we, quite frankly, have all of the um, characteristics of a covenant-breaking nation that is under the discipline of God. So it's like all those conversations, well, how could this be? How could that thing happen? Why would this? And, and the answer is, it's look at it, look, if, you look, if you read and study the history of Israel, you'll see how we dealt with them. Weather patterns, war, economy, social degrading of social morals, and all bad spiritualism, it's all here. So we're, we're living in this, environment and it has to do with God's awakening a covenant breaking nation he's trying to get the, he's trying to get a nation to repent mm-hmm. that has to start the church by the way it has to start with us and you know it's easy to point at the church and saying the church is doing it wrong or the church is distracted but we're the church and if you understand this then then bring it you can bring it you could impact the atmosphere in humility you can understand if you're full of the Holy Spirit you will impact the atmosphere wherever you go. When Jesus stood up in the synagogue and said, of course he was Jesus, but, but he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do something. It's why God wants his spirit in you, which is why he's taking us into situations right now that seem impossible because he's trying to get you so desperate that you realize you are not sufficient in and of yourself. So he's awakening a world and he's also awakening his people especially the saints. So we're the ones who hear. 
We're the ones who press in. We're the ones with a little bit, or hopefully more than a little bit, of a sensitivity to what's happening on Earth. A lot of people are not connecting any dots, and they'll say, oh, it's just crazy weather. Oh, it's just the guy who's in office now. If we can get someone else in there, it'll be way better. Or that nation, they were, they were bad for 50 years, and they went away, so this guy will go away, and life will move on, and it will improve. The, the scriptural story has the improvement when the Lord returns, and we have to understand it. So the Joel 2, Acts 2 outpouring that we've read about in recent weeks requires people full of the power of God. It absolutely requires it. It's not whether it will happen or not, because it will happen. The question is whether we're in place for it. It comes down to another whosoever will. It doesn't mean he loves you less if you're out of order or out of place, but the reality is he's looking. I love, no offense to anybody who doesn't live in Tennessee, but I love the <laughs> fact that this is called a, the volunteer state. I love that. I love this. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 3 is my license plate. Your people will be volunteers in the day of your power or the day of your glory. It has to be a volunteer work that God is doing on earth because he's looking for lovesick people. He's looking for warriors. He's looking for obedience. But he's looking for people who love him. A lot of that love, Go to if you go to Psalm 116, sometime, it's a great psalm of deliverance. You don't even know what the guy was in, but it sounds like near death. And at the end of it, he's going, man, I ain't going any place. I am sticking it out. Even if it means death, I am not getting away from my Savior. Someone yeah. 16 is loaded. He goes, you know, what shall I repay? How, what can I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? I'll take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. He's saying, whatever is in the cup I want. When you get to the whatever is in your cup you want, that's when you literally have... Um, I don't want to say mastered, but you've walked into your will being done. It's not your will being done for the circumstances that I invite you into. He's, in, he's really offering, but also requiring us to bring him into every circumstance of our life. And so we're on, on a journey there. So in this season, we're seeing God, you know, doing and saying this to his people. And it's Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. It's available. The light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. He's telling us right there. Now, it's happened, of course, over history many, many times. There have been dark days on earth prior to these days. But, there's, but it's interesting because he says here, that, but the Lord will rise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Much of this has to do with after he returns. But it's also happening now. There's something attractive. People like Peter said that people are going to ask you of the hope that is in you. So that means there's, and talk about, you know, rapture opinions. You going through troubling circumstances and having peace is one of the greatest testimonies the world will ever see. You say, isn't there another way, God? <laughs> Actually, oftentimes not. Oftentimes not. It's you going through the same thing the people in the world are going through, and you have a peace that passes all understanding. And so God has called us to this purposely. And we already know through prior studies that the entire world is not going to get saved. Everybody, God wants everybody to hear the gospel. It's not an issue of um, these people are just here to be spiritual pawns in your Christian adventure. But God says, he says, whosoever will. And we're told he's not willing that any perish. It's why he tells us to preach the gospel to every creature. Because he wouldn't tell you to redeem the time. 
and preach the gospel to every creature if he already knew that no one's getting saved or a few people are getting saved. He wants to offer this gospel to, to everyone. So here we are in 2024. We look at Israel, what transpired October 7th, the invasion, the massacre, loss of lives. It was unprecedented, almost unprecedented in the intensity of wickedness throughout history, nearly. If you study history, there's some horrific things that men have done to other men. But it's the greatest Holocaust since World War II, particularly on God's covenant people who are out of order. And like I've said almost every week, the Jewish people need to get saved. That's their story. And that's why we pray for Israel. And so we're seeing this, but what's really bizarre is that we are seeing more people on earth siding with the invaders than they did with Germany and, and uh, Japan. There's more people literally parading in the streets, crying out for mercy on the people who, who are perpetrated the most heinous acts. That's, it shows you the climate of the world right now. So when someone wants to say, well, how could this be? The answer, how could this be, is look, look at, you know, t well, Timothy's easy one to look at, but it's just this world's getting darker. We haven't reached the level of wickedness that we will reach prior to his return. Just saying that biblically. Timothy says this, we'll just go through it very quickly. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times, not just trying times, but dangerous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, even having a form of godliness but denying its power, even bad religion. He goes, turn away. He doesn't mean turn away and ignore those people. He's not talking about an exclusive club. He's saying you don't partake with them. You warn every man, but we're here in this world to be a light in this world. And the church would be naive to think that um, these things are simply happening. Oh, you know, we have, again, you know, I always say this, but you can connect to prophetic dots, which is why we're studying like this, so we could connect them, because we have to be the voice to say these things. I was at a men's meeting this week. It was very good, and you could just tell by some of the dialogue. I thought, there's, there's no grid or, or little grid. Some of the other dialogues were great. But I'm saying there's even people, Christians, who, you know, I just want to love God. I just want to worship. I have, I have a friend who's, whose life was very, very broken, almost from birth. And, you know, he, he, he one-lines it, God is love. What else do we need to know? I thought, well, it, the book would have been one page. <laughs> I, obviously, the Lord, the Lord intended us to know a whole lot more than that so we could be fully equipped for his service and his purposes. Yes, he is love. There's no question about it. And it's a war within a love story. It's not a love story within a war. So the whole story is a love story. But there's a, there's a, there's a push-me-pull-you going on here. There's a, there's a Dr. Doolittle, if you will. Okay, there's a yin and a yang to this thing. There's a light and a dark to this thing. This is why we want to be in the word. You want to be in prayer. You want to be striving personally to be in the presence of God. And you know, it's interesting. If everything was smooth, we'd be more inclined to not, it's a beautiful day out. Why would we, we'd be sitting here? But what trouble does often, it drives us to the place of sobriety. It drives you to the place of saying, I have to, you know, what's the priority? The priority has to be Jesus in these days. And so God, some of the things that he's doing, which are very uncomfortable in our lives, are driving us to the place of intimacy. 
I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, Jehoshaphat. A lot of the revivals that took place in the Old Testament days, people gathered together because the enemy was coming in or something else was horrific was happening. The people laid things down. In Joel, prior to, in the outpouring story of, of Joel, it's just a few chapters, he's telling the bridegroom to leave, the, the, his, his chamber and the bride to leave her chamber. And he's saying, take the little ones. And it's all about inconvenience. He's saying, well, our priority has to be the purpose of God in these days. It's really critical. And we're also seeing that a required refining work is in the people of God. And so Daniel in 11, 11.35 tells us, some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them. So if we see a Christian or a ministry or something like that that's called by the name of Jesus getting busted, <laughs> a, a stumbling, falling, something happened, please just pray for those people. Because God is doing a work to refine. If he wanted to kill people, he doesn't need three days, eight hours. You know, he doesn't need that. He, but he's trying to refine. He's trying to get us into the fullness that he called us to. Now, it's interesting because he says this. Um, some of those of understanding shall fall in, to refine them. That's the purpose. So he lovingly will stick his foot out. And we're seeing that too. We're seeing things not work. Because God does, if you work, uh, uh, you know, we always talk about it. A dog. We have a dog now. If the dog was bad and you gave him a treat and you said, good dog, what would he do tomorrow? I mean, you really don't, you don't want to affirm that kind of behavior. God is not going to affirm that behavior either. But he says here in Daniel, he says, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time, which takes us to wordings like latter days, appointed time. They're over and over again throughout scripture. And if you literally just made a little graph of those and start connecting them, you get thems and start connecting them, you get a better picture of what we're awaiting to see on earth. Here's a couple of them. Habakkuk, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. Habakkuk 2.3. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. So the vision is not clear, but at the end it'll be purposeful and true. It'll prove itself true later. Jeremiah says something. This is the chapter of, of Jacob's trouble. Very tough scriptures here. You can read 29 through 32. It's an amazing portion of scripture. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it. He's dealing with Israel here. And he says, and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. He's actually putting Jeremiah by God's spirit upon Jeremiah, is putting a time marker on it. It says, in the latter days you will consider it. We're considering these things now. There were people I discussed Jacob's trouble with two years ago who were adamant it wasn't timed right. It, I, I, I think they're probably considering it now. There's just things that will come to, come to pass. They have to come to pass. It's the word of God. Daniel 8, 16, 17. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabe, this is when, this is so cool. This is the first time there's a timing marker that Daniel is learning the when. Like he prophesied the when in Belshazzar's orgy because things were happening that very night. But, he, he, but the idea of hearing a dialogue between angelic beings, it's the first time I believe Daniel's ears perked up. So one man is talking to Gabriel, who Gabriel, by the way, is only mentioned in Scripture, in the book of Luke, the announcement of the Savior, and in Daniel, no other place in Scripture. I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. 
So he came near where I stood, and then he, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So the whole story, where we've been walking this through, is this is all pointing to the conclusion of the age. The book of Daniel, now remember, there's time frames from the book of Daniel to the time of Jesus. Then there's, which obviously has already occurred. Then there's a season between the time of Jesus, the first advent, and now, which has occurred up until today. And then there's a time between now and his return going into the millennium, which has yet to occur. When we start looking at these things, you have, when people start talking about Antichrist, and people go, oh, it's Antiochus Epiphanes, oh, it was this guy, it was that guy. Yes, yes, and no. Because there were times that these things did occur, but Jesus, sitting there talking about the conclusion of the age, he wasn't talking about guys who were Antichrist before him. He was talking future. We have to remember that because sometimes you sort of lump it all together and you just picture people with beards and long hair and robes and sandals and we have this like, you know, thousands of years of God's story and we're, we're forgetting when these things were being written and when they were presented. I actually believe that uh, Daniel 10 and 11, for the, and I'll send you out the funny picture of Daniel hitting a home run with, and pointing like Babe Ruth up to the sky with a baseball bat, but basically Daniel has batted a thousand so far which is why there's been so much warfare against him, including in the Jewish, uh, with the Jewish theologians. They didn't want to put him in with the prophets because he pointed so specifically to, to the appearance of Messiah the first time. And they're trying to, to this day, they're having an issue there, which is one of the issues why they're having a bigger issue because God's trying to deal with them about their savior. So these four verses, okay, this is here, this is cool. Here's what one guy writes, but I've read it over and over again for many people, but I'm just quoting one guy here. He's talking about the verses we are actually going to read this morning. These four verses are perhaps the most misinterpreted and certainly the most controversial prophetic verses in the entire Bible. Christian theologians have long disagreed with one another, and even more so with Jewish sages about their meaning. With much of the disagreement between Christianity and Judaism, coming from the theological biases inherent in each faith. In modern times, neither faith has been able to approach the ninth chapter without bringing along their preconceived exegetical assumptions. In the case of Christian expositors, the assumption is that the 70 weeks describe a 490-year period, which we are going to look at that period. That is actually the popular belief. That is the commonly held story here. And I have to say, nothing that we're going to look at is going to point to another savior or forgiveness through anything other than the blood of Jesus. Trust me, that we're not getting weird, but there are some very interesting mysteries that have to cause us to understand that there, why God is prophetically ambiguous. If that's the only takeaway you get, that God will show you when it's time, but you just keep pressing in and praying and, and dig as much as you can and you're good to go, then we've succeeded in sitting here looking at Daniel 9 for the last couple of weeks. The Jewish people don't want anything pointing to Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah for the Jews. Remember, they said he, he was demonized. They, they said he was demonized. They told the Romans to kill this man. And, and Pilate was, Pilate's wife had had a dream. She said, don't mess with this guy. Had a dream, don't mess with this guy. 
Pilate's trying to let him go. It says it in the book of Acts that Pilate was literally trying to let him go. I don't find anything wrong with this guy. I'm washing my hands. Give me a bowl of water. Look what I'm doing. I'm washing my hands. It doesn't work that way. And they said, let his blood be on our hands. That was 2,000 years. How's it gone for the Jewish people? They've obviously been blessed. There's lots of accomplishment. It's a miracle as a Jew on the planet. But at the same time, it's been a tough 2,000 years. It's been very, very tough. And someone was talking yesterday, someone is teaching someplace on uh, anti, or speaking to a leader someplace on anti-Semitism. And he, this guy knows his Bible, but he says, can you give me some scriptures? Can you this? Can you that? I said, yeah. And I laid out some stuff for him. And, but I said, the storyline is that God is dealing heavily with them. He's dealing with the Jewish people in these days. And so it's, it's a frustration because it's not, and I told him, I said, read, read Romans 10 and 11. Paul wrote that because the church was thriving without Jews. They had been expelled from Rome and, and the church was thriving because they were doing all this other stuff and worshiping and God loves his people. If he waited for people to be perfect to love him, we wouldn't be loved either. So he's loving on the Church of Rome, and they basically that's where uh, replacement theology. And Paul, Jewish Paul writes to them and says, dudes, don't do that. Don't do that. you got big trouble ahead when you start doing that. And, for, and much of the church has either done that, which is the worst, that Jews are out and the church is in, but the reality is they don't understand the, God's covenant commitment. And because of that misunderstanding of covenant, literally they don't even take their own covenant with God seriously. All that to say, in the case of Christian expositors, the assumption is that the 70 weeks describe a 490-year period that will not end until the second advent of Jesus. In the case of Jewish expositors, the assumption is that the 70 weeks say absolutely nothing about Jesus. Now, there was literally, there was disaster control in the, the Jewish sages, the all of the centuries, but especially the first several centuries after the cross, after the work of the cross. What are we going to tell the people? We, had a, we got a whole bunch of anointed people leaving. Hey, wait, we had a church split. We had a synagogue split. Now, it was a small percentage, but they set the world on fire. And they were, they're sitting there, they're doing like a mop-up. And remember, the crucifixion took place during a pilgrimage holiday. So the city was packed with eyewitnesses. It's exactly what they didn't want. They said, we just, let's just kill the guy. They would have been happy killing him in a room someplace. But not on the feast day, because there's going to be an uproar. It'll be a riot. There's too many people like this guy. Too many people have gotten healed. Too many people's hearts were burning with truth. And they said, not on the feast day. And, and, and God was basically saying to Basically, tough noogies, this is my schedule. Jesus knew when it was time. He knew when it was time. He set his face to Jerusalem because he had to be the Passover lamb. I mean, there were so many clear markers of who he was, why he was there, the day he had to die, what had to be accomplished. And then they said, let's lock the tomb. We got to seal the tomb because this liar said he's going to be, he's going to raise on the third day. I mean, it was unbelievable to cover up. Talk about fake news. Talk about winning or losing an election. Seriously. I mean, it's cra this isn't new. What we're looking at right now on earth is not new. Throughout all the scripture, there are specifics and there are things that are ambiguous. God is perfect and he knows everything. It's not that God doesn't know when something is going to happen or he wants to have some leeway to make adjustments. You know, it's not like, you know, you know like the football games when they hold up their sheet, you know, and they talk so just in case someone could read lips. 
they're talking to each other or they're on the mound during a baseball game and they got their, their gloves up so somebody with binoculars can't read their lips. Or they could bang on drums they still. They can bang on yeah, garbage cans. That's another story. But we're still working. Still we're still working to forgive the Astros. But we'll get over it originally. Pray for my wife especially. <laughs> so here, so listen to this. This is a crazy one. Here's prophetic ambiguity. It's like, are you kidding me? Listen to what God tells Moses. His pal Moses, friend of God. Okay, Exodus three verse ten. Come now, and, and the reason I'm giving to you is not just to like, you know, bolster my opinion, but it's to, it's to solidify that this is how God works. What we want to do is we want to understand how God works because, again, every circumstance of your life is not going to be in Scripture. But if you know how he works, you're in, you're in really good shape. Exodus 3, verse 10 through 12. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Very clear. Who, what, all that stuff. My people out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, because Moses obviously knew better, right? Moses, the guy, I don't speak well, my brother's more articulate. All this nonsense. God said, I called you, dude. This is like us telling God how disqualified you are. He already knows. There's nothing to do with that. If he calls you, just say yes. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, God says, I will certainly be with you. That's really all you need. And listen to this sign. This is like, are you kidding me, sign? This shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses is probably sitting there thinking, that's after. I need a sign. I need a now sign. I don't want an after sign. I want a now sign. And there's several of these in scriptures that are sort of mind boggling but there are times when God just tells you to do something and it makes no sense but you know it's him yeah. and that's when the fun begins that's the real that's the magical mystery tour when you really are praying and you really hear God and it really aligns with scripture and it's totally impossible you think that's when that's when we start terrorizing the world and that's the story that's the difference between logic and theologic and that's what God's trying to get us into in these days I love that. So, you know, one might be a client to think, what good is a sign that happens after an event? It's for the people coming after the event. See, we look at Moses going, dude, what was wrong with you? We're thinking, no, dude, great dude. <laughs> like God, he was faithful, you know, and, and God came through. And then you have the Jews coming out of Egypt with all the signs and wonders and jewelry and flat screens. They took all the goodies from the Egyptians. And then and they were like praising God. They were probably praising God right up to the Red Sea. And they looked there and they think, what are we doing at the Red Sea? We're toast. And he's constantly growing us into this place of, will you believe me for the impossible? Not believe me in idiocy or ignorance of how he operates, but pressing into the place of relationship where you could feel his spirit. This thing's going on in our family and other people's lives around us where when I'm praying, they don't look, the, the logic doesn't look good, but I'm feeling something. I, thought, I, want to, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I don't want to miss. So he's calling us to be people of faith. So out of the wondering about times for fulfillment, it's not something that has come upon us in these days. It's not like everybody in history and scripture knew. Where, it wasn't clearer then. It wasn't more clear then. And I'm going to, these verses I read all the time, these scriptures drove me into the Jewish scriptures. But I, but I want to look at them with this lens of, of timing, okay, and the wondering about times. Peter is talking 
about salvation, our salvation experience. You can read 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9 to confirm that. Of this salvation of prophets have inquired in the past and searched carefully who prophesied in the past of the grace that would come to you. Meaning the grace is now here because Christ died on the cross and now we're born again. But people before that, the Old Testament prophets were prophesying that stuff. And what were they asking God? Searching what or what manner of time? So Isaiah is writing going, when? What are you talking about and when? Zechariah, what are you talking about and when? Ezekiel, what are you talking about and when? Over and over again, they're having the same questions we have. Searching what manner, what and what manner of time the spirit of Messiah, Christ who was in them, was indicating when he testified before it happened, before the sufferings, beforehand, the sufferings of, the, of Christ and the glories that would follow. Christ's sufferings were concluded when this was written. This is after the cross, after the, his death, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the upper room, and he's talking about the prophets who were prior to that. It's clear to understand that. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering. Basically, the Holy Spirit was saying to them, there's people in the future. Now, we're getting close to the conclusion of future in this age because the clock's ticking. It's, we're we're 2,000 years forward from this. We have history to look back on that Peter didn't have. He was looking forward to prophetic things and we could look back on, on things. But then he goes on, all, and, he, and he tells us here in verse 13, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that he just talked about a grace that was revealed. He said there's going to be another grace that is going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. He's talking about the revelation like the book Revelation. The book Revelation, it's not revelations, it's the re reveal of a man when he returns. It says there's going to be a fullness of a grace that we still don't fully comprehend. We still don't have a grasp of it. So there's all these unknowings that we're called into, and it, quite frankly, it makes us uneasy. It would be so much easier, God, but here's a better way of doing things than we do. So we're called to continue in the hunt, the daily hunt, diligently, and his purposes. We're called to be doing it. And Daniel himself gets told this. It includes a lot of prophetic pointers. It's in Daniel 12. Daniel 12, verse 7 through 10. Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters. This is the conclusion of the book of Daniel. So Daniel was all the way through from being taken captive and, you know, just having tough life and, you know, in you know, lion's den and all, all these things going on and prophesying to people, having dreams, having visions, pro, you know, interpreting other people's dreams and visions. He goes now and he's fasting. He's had these experiences. We're going to see another one in, in verse 10, in chapter 10, excuse me. Then I heard a man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand, both hands to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it will be for a time, times, and a half a time. Now that sounds like three and a half. That's Bible speak for three and a half. I do not have a problem with seven years of tribulation, and I do not have a problem with an understanding that in the, it looks like in the middle of the seven years there's going to be some kind of shift. I don't have a problem with it. But I have to say, I am holding those things lighter now than I've ever held them. I'm holding them lighter. But, he, but this is clearly, this sounds like a three and a half year thing. And, it, and you could correlate it to other places in scripture on how it looks. Time, times, and half a time. But it also tells you something about the condition of the people of God on earth in those days. 
And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. And dang. Completely shattered. So he's saying the saints will be on empty. Although I heard, I did not understand. Totally get it with you. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. He's telling Daniel that. He says, it's sealed. You're not going to know. And there's things that are, I believe are still sealed. There's things that we don't know yet. There's other people believe everything's unsealed. I can't, there's certain things I can't answer yet. And there's some assumptions that have to be made to think everything's unsealed now. I don't think, I think God's a God. I always, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, people kid around and go Jehovah's sneaky, but he is. <laughs> you know, he's, he surprises us with things, how things turn out, which is why there's so many theories on these verses that we will get to this morning. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, which is why the nations rage, because they're wicked. They're not just lost. People, everybody who's lost isn't wicked, and every nation that's lost isn't wicked, but there's wickedness that, that is fomenting in these days. It's sort of like when it came to the iniquity of the Amorites. It's sort of like the world before the flood, when the thoughts of men were only evil continually. We're not there yet. But we're not to be fainting in these days. We're to be girding up our loins. We're to be pressing into God. We should be fine-tuning our ability to hear him and respond soberly to him. From our reading of Daniel's most accurate prayer in Daniel 9, remember the angel's like falling over himself to get to him. He said, dude, you're loved. You're loved in heaven. I came to give you this prayer. I came to give you, answer you. From our reading of Jesus saying when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of righteousness. Convict the world. There's, a, there's an understanding in man that does not align with the understanding of God. We have the mind of Christ. We know that. You know, uh, Jesus said, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of basically stinking thinking, wrong thinking. A lot of the righteousness of man is humanism. A lot of it is humanism. And the book is tougher than what we think, how we think it ought to be. We sort of think gentleness is righteousness. Some of it is rolling over. Like a little kid getting a swat on his butt so he doesn't run out in the street and get hit by a car and crippled will look at the SWAT thinking, my dad's cruel. Because they don't understand what's happening here. But the scripture says God disciplines the ones he loves. And so he's disciplining a world because he's trying to turn us. So it boils down to how God thinks and how man thinks. And so we're constantly fed. I mean, the whole story of humanism, you're constantly fed the theory of theories of man. And a lot of times you'll get like funky religions or phony religions or you'll get philosophies and they'll have components of truth in them because a counterfeit, no one counterfeits uh, $3 bills. Say, this is a real three. This is a, trust me, this is a real seven and a half dollar bill. They, they counterfeit real numbers. And so a lot of the phony religions have a lot in common. People, that's like when a Jehovah Witness comes to your house and they, the first thing they want to do is show you the common ground and then they get off on their weird stuff. But people, they, they, that's what counterfeits are for. This is another reason for the signs and wonders where Jesus said, if possible, that Satan's going to show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. And the churches scrub the church of signs and wonders because they don't want to offend anybody because they're weird. You know, a guy dying on the cross is weird. Someone raising the grave, walking on water, parting seas. Those are all weird. The whole book is weird. Something weird happened when you prayed. 
It was weird that we spent all that time with cleaning our dope and we came home the first night after we got saved and flushed it down the toilet laughing. That was weird. You invest in something and spend hours and toss it. I spent hours. She spent <laughs> I'd smoke timber. <laughs> anyway, so it never wants to be learning more facts and figures. It has to be a transformation of understanding that God has a better way of doing things. Is a better way. It's not our way. And as far as the relief of, of, I love this verse in the beginning of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of his prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. It doesn't say blessed is he who perfectly understands. In fact, many people will read it once, think it's this flash Gordon meets heaven, you know, because you got all this like swirling stuff with noises and special effects, and they'll never want to get back into the book thinking I can't, it's over my pay grade. But the reality is, he said, just press into the Word of God. There's something that happens in your mind and in your spirit and in your heart that will transform you. So even if you don't have all the dots connected, something happens in you. This is why Paul in, Re in Romans told us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not by the filling of your mind. It's not it. It's not just a knowledge base. So we're invited to understand how God operates. He's always holy. No matter what he does, he's always holy. We know that. Okay, listen to what it says here in Jeremiah 9. This is uh, quite amazing. Thus says the Lord, he says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, which wisdom we know is a good thing, which, you know, we'd bask in our wisdom if all the answers were in the book. Can you imagine having one, like meeting for like having like an intensive for like, okay, we're going to read the Bible for like, we're all going to get together. We'll do like a, a summer retreat. We'll do two months. At the end of the summer, you'll have it all. This is going to be like a crash course in God. I mean, everybody would probably sign up or at least the Christians would thinking if I can get all this, I do it. But the proof is it doesn't work that way. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Might's good. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Riches are good. These are all good. These are blessings. These aren't sins. He says, but let him who glories, glories in this. And he understands and knows me. So you have a relationship with him and you understand how God operates. And that will equip, and, and you're in communication with him. And that will equip you for the unforeseen, which God is intent on doing in these days. And then he goes on. And he says that he understands and knows me. And then he tells you a little about himself in, in present tense. I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, even now. He'll only let it go so far, and then he'll stop it. Now, he lets it go further than we would let it go sometimes. That's the other problem we have. For in these things I delight. Behold, the days are coming without a when mentioned here. So he doesn't say when. He say when, 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 says the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. I will punish all. I'll punish everybody. And the Jewish people thought, oh, look, we have this act of circumcision. Eight days, men get circumcised, so, so we're not in that group. And this is Jeremiah speaking to them. They hated this guy. They didn't want to hear truth from this guy. He was telling them truth. He says, it's coming. It's coming. He was there during the captivity. It's coming. There's a little arch out of one, out beside one of the gates um, in, uh, in, in Jerusalem where they think that's where Jeremiah might have actually moved the ark out of, this, out of the temple before the destruction of the temple. It's called Jeremiah's Gate. He saw it coming. He said, it's coming. It's coming. And, you know, he's like a party pooper. But he says, I'm going to judge them all. He says, I'm going to judge the circumcised with the uncircumcised. He says, because it's not about a physical act. It has to do with your heart. 
The intent of God is that a heart would be circumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corner. So it's every nation. He goes, I'm going to judge the whole world. All the ones whose hearts are hardened against me, who do not have Shabbat hearts, covenant hearts. They haven't been cut, cutting a deal. We get that word. We're going to look at it when we, when we start looking a little bit later. But he says, all the ones who don't have to cut hearts, he says, all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Because these are my people. Of all people, the accountability of being a person of God with an uncircumcised heart is massive. So first, being filled with the Holy Spirit, praying always, not always praying with the understanding. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. Paul, read it in Romans. Read Romans 8. Spend time there. It's great. Often pray, Paul says, I'm praying in the Spirit. I can't encourage you enough to do that. I am finding myself there personally. Again, if you were taught contrary to that, if someone said it went away the first, the first century, I apologize. Get over it. <laughs> Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Having done all to stand means having done all to stand. Will he love you more? No. Just pray. Just pray. Okay? What does Paul say? He goes, what's the bottom line? What's the conclusion? Perfect Jewish businessman. Paul, what's the conclusion? I'll pray with the Spirit. I'll also pray with the understanding. There's things that I can verbalize. There's times when I'm talking to God out loud. Per, you know, me, me and him. There's other times I'm, you know, praying in tongues. Because I don't know how to pray as I ought to pray, but he knows the Spirit of God is in me. I know that. You know the Spirit of God is in you. And so you sit there and you just pray in tongues because there's way too many things. I don't even have, I don't have enough words. Wordy me. I don't have enough words. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the outcome, but I know who knows the outcome. So he says, that's the, this is the bottom line. I will sing with the Spirit. I can't tie three notes together when I'm singing words, but if I'm singing in the Spirit, I'm, I'm spectacular, almost. Not really. <laughs> Better. <clears throat> okay, Daniel 9. Here we are, guys. So the angel comes to Daniel. He tells him, he says, you are love, 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 love. You have been through the ringer. You've been through the wash. He might have been a eunuch. We, we, it looks that way. He was, uh, he was in service under the guy who was a guardian of the eunuchs. He, ha he hasn't had a perfectly easy life. There's no lineage. We never hear of his wife. So we just... You can connect those dots if you want. I'm just saying he was, uh, uh, he was basically in captivity his whole life. He was honored. He got elevated. He was sort of like a Holy Spirit-filled Henry Kissinger, if you will. He was, a, he, he was an admin to these different nations that would come in, empire after empire. Everybody knew this guy was anointed and lit up. But he still, it was, it was, his nation was in trouble. He's praying, he's crying out, and he's saying, God, you are righteous. He's looking at people with big scars in their faces from fish hooks, from being pulled into Babylon. And he says, everything you did, God, is righteous. He says, because of covenant. It's so critical for us to understand how God handles covenant and addresses covenant. Righteous man swears to his own hurt. You're, if you swore to something, you do it. God holds us to that. That's why when people say he's a man of his word, it's a high honor. It's a high honor. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have to, and I've come to tell you, for you are great. Can you imagine an angel coming, telling you that everybody in heaven has a t-shirt with your name on it? <laughs> you know, really, you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand division. So he's understanding division, but I don't know that he was to understand every time, because when we got to Daniel 12, which we read, he's still asking about time. But he says, I want you to understand the vision. And he says, 
70 weeks. Now, we'll get into this next week because, gee, we might be doing this for 70 weeks. <laughs> no, please, God, no. 70, it's actually 77s. It's actually 77s. 70 weeks. Remember, we're reading the English Bible. If you go to other Bibles, it might show up as sevens. In fact, some of the, um, is it the NIV that says sevens? And by the way, it's really funny. The New Living Translation is not a translation. The New Living Translation is a highly anointed paraphrase. It's great. I read it. I refer to it. I love it, okay? Um, but it's not a translation because it's not a word for word. NIV sort of is a translation because they, they try to encapsulate the, the, the it's, it's not a paraphrase. It's much more... Um, in a line with word for word, but it's still not word for word. So it does the thought. It yeah, does the thought. thought. Yeah. yeah. So it's very. So the best thing to do is read them all. Find one that works for you and read them. But read more than one because you'll see where praying people go because they're all really good actually. <laughs> Seventy weeks are throughout are determined. Sovereignty of God. They're determined for your people and for your holy city. I'm going to read it once and then I'll go through. Next part. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Seventy weeks. Know therefore and understand. Now he starts breaking them down a little. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And, you know, in just reading it, if you never read it before, you'd already think it's confusing. Who's the he? Sounds like there might be sort of a bad guy in this, but aren't we talking about Messiah? But then you got a bad guy thing going on. Couldn't you have written it differently or more accurately? The answer is yes. God chose to have this released to Daniel, just cited like that. So the most commonly presented interpretation of these verses is based upon what appears to be reasonable assumptions, okay? Now, we have to remember, and this is for us in everything you read. If you're doing a Bible study on Noah's Ark or, or, or the captivity or, or marriage, the Bible testifies of itself. The Bible is echad. The Word of God is perfect, whole, complete, and it converts the soul. So the book tests the best Someone asked recently on a tech stream I was on, and I was just being sarcastic but, uh, when I replied, but uh, they said, what's, the, what's a really great book to read about prayer? I said, Bible. <laughs> it really is. You see, people move mountains. I mean, they got revelation from heaven. So, I mean, there are books. There, people do that. Really. A great book, by the way, on the fear of the Lord is by John Bevere. It's an amazing book, the, the fear of the Lord. There, there would be less wickedness if people feared the Lord. David said in Psalm 36, an oracle within my heart concerning the wicked, there's no fear of God before their eyes. For they flatter themselves when they find their, their iniquity and when they hate. So it, it's the fear of the Lord's been taken out of church in, because of humanism. 
Because, oh, we can't, that can't be our God. Many of the things that are some of the really toughest things in the Old Testament that people want to assign and ascribe to the season of the Old Testament are actually Old Testament prophecies of the conclusion of the age. So what do you do with that? I mean, there's some serious stuff that has to come down because God is always fair, always faithful, always just. Isn't that right? Amen to that. Okay. What's that? The John the Good Book. It's a good book. Okay. So, okay, so, okay, here we go. The most commonly presented interpretation. All scripture in its Zachad wholeness has to align with scripture, which we will get into next week as we consider alternative opinion to verses 24 through 27. So, but I want to show you what is generally embraced in the church in the Western world right now. 70 weeks commonly interpreted to mean years. Now, I have to say, in the, in the, um, in the New Testament, if you, if you type in the words S-C-V-E-N-T-Y in any kind of search engine, you're going to get 70 guys going out. You're going to get a couple of those. Nothing to do with 70 weeks. There's no mention. None at all. It's just interesting. And one is it's to drive us back into the fullness of the scripture. That's one reason. But it's, it's just sort of interesting. There's, there are things in the book of Revelation that talk about certain numbers of days that totally come down to, um, to three and a half years. So it's clear that there's a correlation here, and we press in. And I've, I know some theologians who say, oh, there's nothing in Scripture that, that applies to a, that even looks at a 30-day month. I disagree. I think there's a whole lot of things that do. But if you look at the actual wording, you won't find it saying, a, there's not a verse that says a month equals 30 days. But there's, I mean, there's calendars all over the place. Even some of the times when they say that when we start getting into the the command to rebuild Jerusalem. There's like a bazillion of them. We're going to look at those, and some of them math out very differently. They all point. They end up all pointing to Jesus, by the way, which is hilarious. But we just have to be careful how we sort of buy into one. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. This is the Jewish people, and everybody says this, and I agree, and I say amen. But we also have to remember this. We're talking about mysteries here. We're definitely talking about mysteries. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3. Rabbi Paul, Jewish Rabbi Paul. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. He's talking about a mystery that was revealed. That's not a mystery to us. I mean, I'm looking in this room. There's one Jew in this room. So... It's not a mystery to us. And in fact, we're mystified when we hear, see Jewish people come to Christ. We go, oh, Jewish guy got saved. But I'm just saying your people and your holy city, the holy city is always going to be Jerusalem. But you, and your people, I believe this has to do, because he's talking literally about the geography of Jerusalem, but it includes the church in, to some way. And he says, so 70 weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city. And then I'm, I'm numbering the things, okay, because there's six of them here. One, to finish the transgression, meaning to address the rampant and ongoing and clearly unstoppable by man curse of sin on earth. That has to happen. Another thing is determined to make an end of sins, meaning provide a means of redemption that can provide forgiveness and transformation to get us out of living in the dark to be living in the light. Three, to make reconciliation. A price had to be paid. We know that in Leviticus, without the shedding of blood, there's no re uh, remission for sin. It's quoted again in Hebrews 9, to make reconciliation for iniquity. So a price had to be paid. 
So these are determined things. They're pointing, remember, to the work on the cross. This is why the Jewish people don't want the book of Daniel in the prophets. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, you could say, well, wait a minute. Did everlasting righteousness come into the world through Jesus? Yes and no. Because you, when you sort of say that, you think the whole world will be fine after that. Remember what his disciples said? Now are you going to do it? Now is it? Now are you going to return the kingdom? Now are you going to give the Romans a whooping? And he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons. He says, just be filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and then you witness around the world, and then the end will come. And, I'll, um, the, way, and the angel said the same way he came up, he's coming back down. So even then they didn't know. But so bring in everlasting righteousness. Is it the conclusion of the age? Or is it to bring in a, a method of everlasting righteousness? So we could walk in that now. To bring in everlasting, to seal up vision and prophecy. The word seal up this divides churches. What does seal up mean? Is it putting a wax on it like a seal that it cannot open? Is it seal mean to, to conclude? And there's all sorts of usages of the word in the Old Testament that, like when you read Jerome, who was writing in 400 AD, I sent you that, they start going back on what the word seal means, what the word covenant means, what the word cutting means, what the word vow means. They're, this is not a new speculation. You know what? I bet you Jerome's in heaven, whether he got it right or wrong. Yep. That's the good news. There's a lot of guys who wrote a lot of things over the years that were not 100% accurate. I don't believe it kept him out of heaven. I think there's certain things that we're called to, we're pressing in to know. More importantly, we're pressing into Yada, the writer of the book, the man who is the book. To seal up vision and prophecy is not to stop prophecy. There are people who think all that are miracles, all that are supernatural, all that are prophetic, it all ended when the book came together, the perfect word of God, that all those things are over. And now we just have this like clump of, whole anointed data. That's not what it says. The reason people don't see prophecy oftentimes is because they don't believe it. According to your faith, so be it unto you. It works both directions. You have no faith, it won't happen. God's not begging people to believe prophecy in these days. He's not. He's offering people salvation. And to anoint the most holy, that would be the anointing of Jesus. However, there are, there are other most holies. This word most holy is actually Mashiach. It's Messiah. They called, David called a Saul Messiah. They called the high priest Messiah. There was one guy, I want to say his name is Onius. We'll look at it next week. And it might have been in some of the proliferation of paperwork I've been sending you guys. There was one guy, that, it was so corrupt in Israel, they, be, back then when you were a priest, especially high priest, if you had like a wart on your hand, you were disqualified. Uh, there were other things would disqualify you. They, there was a perfection, like a physical requirement for, you know, you didn't have to be like, you know, Brad Pitt looking, but, but you had to not have any kind of disfigurement or something like that. They cut this guy's ear off. Someone cut his ear off to disqualify him from the priesthood. It's like, are you kidding me? No. That's the kind of nuts. So then you have to anoint the most holy. There were things that happened. There's one, I don't even know if I'm ever going to get to it in this teaching, because eventually we have to move on from these verses. But there, there were, you know, there's, when Jesus said, suffer um, for the sake of righteousness, baptize me, there's people who always say, well, why was Jesus baptized for sin? He wasn't a sinner. And some people think that that was one of the dates, a marker date, for, for the anointing. 
when Jesus stood up in, in, the, uh, in the synagogue and read that scripture and truncated it and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Someone said that was a launch date. And there's people who take that date and calculate back to one of the commands to rebuild the temple. Cleopatra figures into this. Some, really, it's, it's all over the map. We'll, we might touch on We will touch on some of it next week. Timing components, as per the popular interpretive opinion, know therefore and understand. Remember this, again, the timing here, Daniel is before Jesus is born, before Jesus' ministry, his crucifixion, his death, his ascension, and then you have 2,000 years. But he says this, when you, Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, this, remember, this is Jesus speaking at the conclusion of his ministry, when you see the abomination of desolation, he can't be talking about someone killing a pig on the altar of the temple in Old Testament days or during the intertestamental days. So we have to exclude that. And it talks about from the beginning of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. There's massive differences there. He talks about until Messiah the Prince. When an anointed one appears, most assuming, and I believe correctly, even though there's some speculation, term Messiah was applied to a lot of people. And it's opened up a whole course of dialogue. And a lot of people say, they, they use these as timing markers. And then he talks about seven weeks and 62 weeks. It's going to be seven. That is 69 weeks. This is called the 70-week prophecy. 70, 69 weeks. And this, and, but there's something had to have occurred. There's a hint here. There's a prophetic ambiguity that something big had to occur in this percentage of a 69-week prophecy or a 69 sevens prophecy because he wouldn't have broken it down like that. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. And most of the theories regarding these verses fail to find historical markers. They almost all do. And when you go online, you start Googling 70 weeks, they all point you back to these verses assuming it says 70 weeks, so therefore it's 70 weeks. So they make an assumption based upon an understanding that the word they were taught was weeks, and therefore they say, well, it could be, a, it's a roundabout. I mean, I sent you, I think it was about three send-outs earlier, I sent you some of the wording of some of these theologians who write this stuff, and they're saying, well, it, you know, it only took this much time, but then there's, it was probably 300 years more. I mean, just the speculation is a little bit frightening, especially if you're sensitive to God's specificity on how he does things. And, and I have to say it, I'm just saying it personally, there's been so many numerical crazies that have happened in my life that I can't deny these. I feel convicted when I, when I say, well, maybe it's off by 300 years. I can't do that. I say you know, that thing on the birth dates, the 816, 8227, my birthday, my dad's birthday, my mom's birthday, the three verses say the same thing. I, I didn't write that, I didn't make it, I didn't choose my birthday. I'm just saying that there's certain things that God does in our lives as people so that we could understand something in our spirit that this chronospecificity works. I told you before computers, I'd have 8, 9, 10, 12 clocks in my office. I was like obsessed with time. I, we've had so many crazy timing things. I thought when I saw Dan Bruce, who I don't fully agree with, talking about chronospecificity, I thought, sign me up. And the code that he broke in Daniel 8, I was like, yeah, that's very possible. And what, he's, what he says here, there's some credence to it. I can't walk away from that in the fear of God. 
Then there's obviously an addressing of the why of the seven and 62. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. After 62 weeks actually means after 69 weeks. It's even that is a little bit of a hedge for understanding because he's saying after 62, but there's seven, then there's 62. So that means after 69th week, he's going to be cut up, but not for himself. And that's likely pointing to Jesus's crucifixion. I clearly don't have a problem with that. He gets cut off and he's not cut off for himself. He wasn't guilty. He was cut off for you. He was cut off for the, for the future sins of the world. Okay. He goes, and then he goes on and it says, and this, again, the whole thing we're cutting, we're going to look at. And then he says, and the people of the prince who was to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And for years, literally for almost 2,000 years, people have been saying it's Rome. It's a revived Roman Empire. Some people think it's the Roman Catholic Church. First of all, the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire are two different things. So get off picking on the Roman Catholic Church. They're, they do. There's a whole lot wrong there. There's a whole lot wrong in the Protestant church, okay? Get over it. It's not talking about that. And I believe, I'm very much convinced, that it's the Syrians, that we're going to see Antichrist coming out of the Muslim world. I believe that. Just saying, though, is that the, the Romans hired provincials. You know that whole story, any, any enemy of my enemy is a friend of mine? So the Romans, of course, they were spread so thin, and first of all, one of the two legs of the empire was near collapse. It was already weakened, and the rest would remain in Constantinople for another thousand years. We looked at that when we spoke on the Nebuchadnezzar statue dream. But the point is, is that they would hire people who hated their enemy, and they'd say, hey, you come in. And so they had hired Syrians to destroy the temple. So yes, there were Roman forces, no question, but they had hired Syrians to come in. And that fits with our Ezekiel Gog study. It fits with our Zechariah study. It's Zephaniah study. It fits. The parts are fitting. Passover King, it's a great book. Read, read some of these things. Read uh, the, the Islamic Antichrist, the Mideast Beast. Read some of these books and see what they say. It's, and they're not exaggerating. It's not emotional writings. They don't preach, but it's... It's, we know things now that people didn't know back then. We're able to uh, Google Jerome. I'm reading a guy from the 400s last night. We were able to read Tacitus. We are able to read Josephus. A lot of these things weren't available to these people. Oh, knowledge will increase. We're told that in Daniel. Isn't, you know, the, the, don't blame the, the Internet for porn. People are perverts. People are perverts. Some of the things that were carved on cuneiforms were perverted. Go to India and look at some of the Hindu gods. It's like de totally degenerate. Kama Sutra is wicked. It's insanity. So man has always been perverted. We didn't need the internet. It just made it easier. But at the same time, knowledge and research is easier too. You could go online and find things out. You could read something that was written 3,000 years ago on, online. You start reading it. We, start, we have 2,000 years of... Um, of luxury and being able to know these things. Until the, okay, then he goes on, shall destroy the sanctuary. It's going to be dramatic. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. The conclusion of the age of man is not going to be a peaceful series of events with glo global salvation. That's clear. He goes, and he says, then he shall, he, meaning this one, the prince who is to come. Now that is written cryptically, could have been written easier. He could have said the prince who was to come, but he says he here because God wrote the book in such a way as to challenge us. He's trying to grow our brains. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And that sounds like 
seven years or a seven, a period of a seven in the midst of the end days conflict, the prince who is to come, the, it looks like the Jewish people are going to get duped by a world peace. This is commonly taught. I don't have a problem believing it. Because the world wants to do it. We want to compromise. Now, people are saying, oh, give them land back. What, what, whatever was accomplished by giving land to, to the nations around Israel? No. They just had more land. Mm -hmm. That's all. All of Gaza, everything that comes into that place, their water, their electricity, their medicine, their food, it came in through Israel. Some of it's still coming in through Israel. And the world is calling Israel the bad guy. It's unbelievably, they're calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. And aligning with that, I believe, sets nations up for judgment. When you get into, in fact, I gave that guy the scripture yesterday. When you talk about Zechariah, which says, there the apple of my eye. He goes, this is the most sensitive place. He says, you don't go poking God in the eye by treating Israel poorly. You don't go there. You don't do the arar kalal. You don't understand those who bless you, I'll bless them. Those who, who treat you lightly, I will curse. The bar is elevated way higher than not cursing Israel. The church passively thinks, I'm not cursing them, I'm fine. God says, no, you're not fine. You're not fine. He's calling us into this place of understanding. They need, a, they need salvation, but they need to be loved. He goes, he shall bring an end of sacrifice. Okay, then he goes on here. In the middle of the week, which sounds like three and a half days or years, okay, which some people think is the middle of the tribulation period. We call it, the word is troubling. In the middle of the, the greatest trouble yet to hit, and Jesus told us that in Matthew 24, before his crucifixion, the end is going to be the greatest trouble, so we know that fits. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. You know why? What did Satan say to Jesus? I'll give you all this if you worship me. This whole thing's about worship. This whole thing is about who do you worship? Do you worship him? Like what did Bob Dylan say? You, can, you might serve the yes. devil or you might serve the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. This whole thing's about worship. And, and the satanic drive that's in a man, this antichrist, he's going to require worship. And so he's going to put an end to it. Jews are going to be happy. Hey, we've got the temple now. Everything's cool. Everybody loves us. You're not coming over the border anymore. You know, kumbaya. We're getting along with everybody. And, and this, and this guy's so full of Satan. He's demonized. He puts an end to the worship. And, and, and it starts getting worse again. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on desolate. Meaning, it has to be judgment at the end. It's going to get poured out. It's going to, it's, the abomination causes the desolation of the presence of God. Now, there have been times in history, the history from our day back, and even from pre-Jesus back, when people would bring human waste, menstrual cloths, carcasses of dead animals, and put them in the temple. So has there been abominations that caused desolation in the past? Yes. Are the toughest days ahead? Yes. So none of the interpretations take anything away from the dramatic work of Christ on the cross. Please, whatever we get into next week is not going to like send you in weird world. I'm just saying, and the folks who have put out these sober opinions, you know, all point to the redemption of the cross. And to my point, I'm convinced we will eventually move from these verses with a general understanding of the prophetic gist of the prophecy. And most importantly, the goal here is we get a stronger conviction of pressing into knowing how God operates and how he wants to operate in us and through us in these days. The fact that he called you for such, you know, we always use the Esther Mordecai verse, such a time as this. These are the such a time as this days. 
These are critical days. Paul says, in the evil day, having done all to stand, these are the days that we're heading into right now. And there will always be grace to serve God and to be victorious. So we bless you. We thank you, God. We thank you for the things you made amazingly, wonderfully clear. And we even thank you for the ambiguities, God, the prophetic ambiguities. We thank you for that, God. We thank you for the wonderment. We thank you, God, that your ways are higher than ours. We thank you for that you don't love us less or more depending upon how many Bible verses we've memorized or, or even understand. Bless you for that. Thank you for the work of salvation. Thank you. You, you loved us so much, God, even, before, even while we were your enemies, you died for us. And God, now we want to serve you because we love you, God. You clearly are the safe place. But God, we're asking you to heal our hearts that we can serve you because we're crazy, wildly, passionately in love with you, God. That we would be the lovesick warriors. We would be the worshipers, God. When Isaiah tells us that Assyria comes down with tambourines, God, we would be the ones with our hands held high, worshiping you with a spirit of thanksgiving, calling upon you in the day of trouble, and you will rescue us and we will glorify you. We bless you in that. And God, all the things that we covered this morning, God, again, if it's the gospel according to me, God, it would, it would run off like, a, like water into a ditch. But if it was you, God, it would cement in us a greater conviction of your spectacular holiness and your wonderful plan that, and that fact that you included us in it and you continue to include us, God. And you continue to speak. And you're not simply the I was or the I will be, but you are the great I am this Saturday, God. So as we unmute our mics, God, we just want to tell you that we love you and we agree, Lord, by saying that truly magical word, amen. Amen. So we say yes, so we say yes, so we say yes, so we say yes. Is anybody out there saying yes to God?